Well, it is, it is a rookie mistake to insult me before I get up here, <laughs> because then I have the last word. I mean, he's really showing his age. Um, but I do, I do feel like, in the spirit of full disclosure, you know, I, I came up here earlier, put my sermon notes up here, and Matt's notes were already here for the dedication, and he had scribbled in pencil on the top, insult Steve. <laughs> So he didn't type it back in his office, but the last minute sin in his head decided this needs to happen. So let's, I, I don't want to forget, so let me write it down. <laughs> yes, okay, I, I didn't have time to do all that, but you know, I think the Lord was in it. Okay. Um, hi, uh, I'm Steve, and uh, today, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, one verse, verse 14. Listen to the words of Jesus. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in this series, On Purpose, what we've been doing is trying to come to terms with what is our calling, both as individuals and then over the last three weeks, including this week, as a people, as, as Christians in general. And Matt led us through what it means for God to call each of us individually, to give us a vocation and a specific purpose in this world. Because as he established, God created each of us to put his glory on display in a manner that is different from every other person that he has created. Unlike anyone else, each life that he creates is like a new facet cut in a diamond that reflects and refracts the glory of God in a way that it has never quite been done before. But over the last couple of weeks, what I've been leading us through is the general calling that God gives each of us, and or I should say all of us, as Christians. Like, no matter what our individual calling is, whether we've put the time into understanding what that is or we, don't, we do understand it, we don't understand it, doesn't matter. What I've been trying to do is say, listen, all of us, because we call on the name of the Lord, there are certain things that belong to us as callings, as vocations in this world and we share them in common. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about the call for all of us to make disciples. We've talked about last week the call as a community to bear witness to the grace of God as God's dwelling place. Now today, I want to talk about one more part of our general calling as Christians, namely to do justice in the world to do justice in the world. Now, no matter what your particular calling is in this world, if you call on the name of the Lord, if Christ has rescued and redeemed you, he has put you here to do justice. And in the Bible, justice is almost always, I mean, I want to say always, but I don't want to overplay my hand, but almost always tightly linked with the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, as, as I've put this together, to me, 
I feel like it's a little, comp it's complex. I hope it's not complicated, but it is complex. So let me just make sure each step of the way that we are together. God calls us to do justice, and that justice is tightly linked to the arrival of God's kingdom. Okay, so that's step number one. So when the kingdom comes, when God's king arrives on earth, justice will be done. All wickedness will be judged. All wrongs will be set to right. Every injustice will be sunk under the sea of God's righteousness, and in that we rejoice. But here's where I tell you, and you already know this, that Christians are not the only people who work for justice in this world. Right? People of all stripes work for justice in this world. Governments work for justice in this world. Nonprofits work for justice in this world. Doing justice and establishing equity, this is not something that we have a corner on. It's a basic human impulse. However, there is no other entity on the planet than the church of Jesus Christ who does justice for the purpose that we do, namely to make plain the kingdom of God on earth. In Isaiah 9, the prophet tells us, when God's king arrives, he will sit on the throne of David and it will be a kingdom and a throne established by justice. In Psalm 97, it says that the foundation of the king's throne, God's anointed, the foundation of his throne, is righteousness and justice. So, the point is this, we saw the previous two weeks how when God's people go out into all the nations announcing the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, a community of Christian witness, a dwelling place of God is left in its wake. We go out announcing and then there's a community there and that community is the dwelling place of God. And that community is a sign to the rest of the world that God reigns. That, is, that his kingdom, while it's not yet here in its fullness, has arrived nonetheless. And that is made plain because we can see sinners being reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. But furthermore, when God's kingdom arrives in the midst of a people, justice is done. And that too becomes a sign of God's reign in the world. And what is a sign? A sign is something that points beyond itself to a greater reality. It signifies something beyond itself. So when justice is done in the community of God and in the wider world by the community of God, it is a signpost pointing to the God and the King who sits upon a throne that is established by justice. We good so far? Is this? Okay, good, good. All right. Now, in order to understand all of this, we're going to need to take the long way around. So let's begin by considering what Jesus said there in Matthew 24. Let's consider first the gospel of the kingdom. And then second, we're going to consider the pattern for how the kingdom arrives in this world and what that means for the establishment of justice. So number one, the gospel of the kingdom. Number two, the pattern for how the kingdom arrives and establishes justice. So let's start with the gospel of the kingdom. And we'll start with Matthew 24, the text I read at the beginning. Jesus, if you know this chapter, you know he's been teaching in the temple. 
And as he leaves with his disciples, they look around and they marvel at this structure that has been built and the beauty of it. And he then tells them that there will come a day when every stone that is made, that, that makes this temple up will be overthrown and hurled to the ground. And that, he says, is when the end of the ages will come. And that, of course, raises a question for them. When is that? That's what they want to know. So the temple will be destroyed, end of the ages will come. I would like to know when that is, the disciples say. It's a good question, and probably a question that we would like answered too. But the answer that Jesus gives them is pretty vague. Um, If you've read this, you'll remember he says, well, you know, uh, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famine, sickness, you'll be persecuted. And when those things happen, by the way, you just need to understand that's only signaling the beginning of the process of the end of the ages. So, so when is that? Yeah, that's like every age since Jesus was around. When have there been wars and rumors of wars and famines and persecution? Yeah, all the time. Okay? And he said, by the way, if by some chance you do are able to put your finger on it, that's just the beginning of the birth pangs. That's not, that's, so the point is, he doesn't say. Jesus taught us that his glorious second coming would not arrive in a way that we could puzzle it out, but he said it would arrive like a thief in the night. And the whole point about a thief in the night is you don't know when the thief is coming. There's no use trying to predict it or pin it down. It comes at a moment that only the Father knows, and it is left to us to prepare for that moment whenever it arrives. However, Jesus does give us one more detail. It really is the key to unlocking the when of his arrival. Um, Excuse me. (laughs) No, it's not. Not the when. Um, The character, it's it's not the when of his arrival, but the character of his mission for his people while we await the day on which the everlasting light will come streaming in upon us. And listen to what he says. Let me read that verse once more. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that's as clear as our Lord has ever been about when he will return and what he has left his people to do while he tarries. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, and then the end will come. Now, so many people hear that teaching and they get, they get zero, like, zero in, razor focused on timelines. But that's not what fascinates me. We'll just leave that to the side. Jesus already said, I don't even know, you don't know, don't worry about it. So let's not even worry about that. But what fascinates me is this phrase. He says, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, if I asked you what the gospel is, and you're a Christian, you've been in church for a while, you'd probably tell me something about the atonement of Christ on the cross, his saving death, his triumphant resurrection. You'd probably tell me something about the forgiveness of sins and the adoption into God's family. And if that's what you told me, you'd be absolutely correct. I have no problem with that definition. But what's fascinating is that's not how Jesus defines it right here. At least, it's not the main way that he describes it. When Jesus defines the gospel, 
He says, it's the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, I mean, if you want to nerd out with me for just a second on like, like down in the weeds of Greek grammar, because this was originally written in Greek, the phrase of the kingdom is what's called in Greek an objective genitive. No? Let me, okay, let me keep going. So the genitive part means that it's possessive, and the objective part means that the possessive noun actually functions as the object of the other noun that it modifies. So the whole point is the, a very literal translation of the gospel of the kingdom would be this. The gospel which is the kingdom. Yes, the gospel, which is the kingdom. Let that sink in for a moment. Like, if you ask Jesus, what is the gospel? He would say, the gospel is the kingdom. In other words, the, words, the word gospel, as we know, means good news. That means the good news of Jesus Christ is that the kingdom has arrived. Now, why is the arrival of the kingdom good news? Well, to put it in terms that we established last week, when God's kingdom arrives, it means that God is reconciling sinners to himself and no longer holding people's sins against them. But one of the chief results of God's kingdom is that these people who have been reconciled to God go out into the world doing justice. Because as we saw earlier, justice is the foundation of his throne, and the throne is at the center of the kingdom. These people whom God reconciles to himself, Jesus taught them to pray and they go out praying with one another, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As justice is done in heaven, let us do justice here on earth and thus make witness that the king of justice has arrived. So, for many other reasons, for, for many reasons, this one being chief among them, the reason that the kingdom is good news is because justice will be done. Okay, now, let's move on to the second point and see the pattern for how God brings his kingdom to bear in this world. Because the pattern will tell us exactly how we ought to be pursuing justice as God's people. And throughout the whole Bible, there are two movements by which God establishes his kingdom of justice. The first is exodus, and the second is conquest. Okay? So, how does God establish his kingdom? First through exodus, then through conquest. I know the word conquest is problematic. Stick with me. So, number two, exodus and conquest. Now, the Exodus was the central redemptive event in the history of God's people under the Old Covenant. Like, you can hardly turn a page in the Old Testament without seeing somebody making a reference to the Exodus, the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. It's like, after centuries of servitude under the lash of the Egyptians, God's people cried out to him, and he came and delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he brought judgment 
upon the Egyptians with great miracles and signs and wonders. Or to say it another way, he manifested his kingdom and brought justice to his people. The Egyptians were guilty of injustice. Yahweh comes in and brings justice. Yes? Okay. After the Lord had triumphed over Pharaoh, he led his people through the Red Sea and then on to Mount Sinai where, as you know, he gave his people a law and established a covenant with them through Moses. Now, for the purposes of this sermon, the giving of the law, the, giving of the, law, the establishment of the covenant, it's not as important. What's vitally important for us is to realize what kind of relationship God established with his people on that day. And we don't have to wonder about that because Moses tells us plainly in Deuteronomy 33, 5, which I'll just tell you, um, he says on that day uh, when God gave his people a law and established a covenant, covenant with them, Moses says, on that day, the Lord became king of Jeshurun, which is a synonym for Israel. The Lord became king on that day. So how was God fulfilling his mission in the Old Testament? By establishing a kingdom in which he was the king. And the first act of this kingdom was to do justice on behalf of his enslaved people and to rescue them and redeem them out of the house of slavery in Egypt. So God has delivered his people from Egypt. He's established himself as king, and he intends to put his glory on display through his people. But he hasn't merely delivered them from Egypt to languish in the wilderness. Rather, he has promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, the, the best land they could possibly imagine. And after Moses dies... God raises Joshua up to lead his people into the land and make their homes. But there's one small problem with this whole plan, namely that the land itself is not just a blank slate where they can just move in and set up their homes. Rather, <laughs> there's people there, right? It is an inhabited land. And God tells Joshua that the evil of the Canaanites has come up before him and their judgment is to be ejected from the land. So Joshua's vocation is to lead the conquest. We've seen the Exodus, and now it's time for the conquest of the land. To put it another way, God's kingdom of priests, which is what he calls them, he gives them this vocation in Exodus 19, this kingdom of priests are called to enter the land and bring justice to it. Now, I know how that sounds to our modern ears. Um, and I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have time to deal with this idea of conquest in more detail. Um, but it will be enough to know that these people were very evil in the sight of God. And I don't care what else you believe, all of us can agree that when evil is present, we long to see justice done. And that's what God calls his people to do in conquest. Do justice, cleanse the land of wickedness and injustice. And in that way, God will establish his kingdom and rule his people in the land which he has provided. Now, I mean, the, Can the Canaanites were, 
really wicked. There's, I mean, I can't even stand here in public and tell you the, the kinds of practices they engaged in because it would be kind of indecent. Um, human sacrifice, like forcible human sacrifice is probably the, the least offensive one that I could say uh, publicly and not blush up here. So just, to, just so you know, like, okay, that's enough. Now, that mission to displace the people of Canaan um, was only partially successful. The people drove some of the inhabitants out of the land, destroyed others, but not all of them. And those that they left became a snare to them just as God warned them that they would be. And the pagan nations tempted the Israelites into idolatry and the fundamental breaking of the covenant of God that, that he had made with them at Sinai. And by the time of the prophet Samuel, the people of Israel decide that they're tired of their vocation as a kingdom of priests. And so they ask Samuel to anoint him, excuse me, anoint them a king to rule in their midst. And this is a heartbreaking scene because the people of Israel reject their vocation as a kingdom of priests. Like God said to them in Exodus 19, that they were to be a holy nation. That is a nation set apart where God is king, where Yahweh is king. But here they said, no, we would like to be just like every other nation with a human king who will go out and fight our battles. We've grown weary as We've, we've grown weary with the Lord as our king, so give us instead a human king, and the Lord grants their desire. So the point in all of this is that God's pattern of redemption laid out in the Old Testament is clear. There's exodus, and there's conquest. And what God intended through both of these movements was to establish a kingdom on the earth and a people who would bear his presence to the nation and cleanse the world of evil. But because of their intransigence and iniquity, they fundamentally failed their vocation, and the result was devastating. The conquest failed. And when you get to the prophets, if you, if you were with us last year when we read through the whole Bible, if you remember, when you get to the prophets, you can hardly turn a page without hearing rebukes against the people for their failure to do justice in the land. They have failed the kingdom purpose to do justice. And therefore, towards the end of the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, the, the exodus, that great redemptive movement out of slavery, the exodus is reversed in the exile, and they go back into bondage. And the kingdom has failed. So, the theme of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, it's not good news. It is bad news. They have rejected God as king and have become the kinds of people who do not do justice, but instead mock justice. So that's Exodus and conquest in the Old Testament. Let's look at it in the New Testament. With all of this in mind, it's incredibly provocative when Jesus shows up on the scene and begins to preach. And do you remember what the first words out of his mouth were in Mark 1.15? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God 
is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Everywhere in the gospels, Jesus speaks about the kingdom. Like nearly all of his parables have some version of the phrase, the kingdom of God is like. The Sermon on the Mount is shot through with references to the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the kingdom is theirs. So if you wanted to summarize all of Jesus' preaching, you could say it this way. There is good news. The kingdom has arrived. And what does it look like? Listen, okay. Listen to this. What does it look like when God's kingdom arrives in Jesus Christ? Let's take it from his own words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, in the arrival of God's kingdom, justice is established on the earth. All that is wrong in this world is being made right again in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And in the very next chapter, Jesus quotes Isaiah 42, and he applies it to himself. Isaiah said that when God's anointed king arrives to establish his kingdom, here is what we should expect. Listen, Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Like Jesus is preaching in a synagogue, and he's saying, by the way, this is me. This is me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And in every way that God's people in the Old Testament failed to establish God's kingdom under the Old Covenant, Jesus, as the true Israelite, establishes it on their behalf. And so Jesus came to establish the kingdom that failed under the Old Covenant. And where his kingdom exists, there is justice. And how would he do it? How would he bring his kingdom to bear on this world. In the very same way as God sought to establish his kingdom in the Old Testament, through exodus and conquest. Okay, listen to what, listen to this. Um, you remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain? Peter and James and John. Listen to this. This is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 31. He says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance on his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, are you ready for this? In his glorified state, Jesus speaks to Moses and Elijah about his departure. Do you know what Greek word departure is translating? Exodus. Jesus, in his glorified state, is speaking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus. Oh, okay. Now, what was Jesus about to accomplish? Right? It, what is Jesus' exodus? Well, it says it right there in the end of the verse. It says, they sp- he spoke to them about his departure, about his exodus, which, was about, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And what was he about to accomplish at Jerusalem? His death, burial, and resurrection. Yes? So just as the Israelites passed through the waters of judgment, oh man, the waters of judgment in the Red Sea, and were delivered into salvation on the other side, so Jesus, in his death, entered the Red Sea of God's judgment, but instead of being delivered to the other side in safety, he was consumed by the waves in the very same way that the enemies of God were destroyed in the original Exodus. He was the victim of profound injustice as he was condemned without evidence before an angry mob. Christ became God's enemy on the cross and it crushed him. But three days after the Exodus of Christ, he was raised to everlasting life, never to die again. And with his Exodus complete, do you know what he accomplished? Listen, we hear it in this song that is ringing through the corridors of heaven in Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests unto our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The vocation that the people of Israel were unable to take upon themselves has been accomplished in the exodus of Christ. His people, the people who believe that Christ died, bled, was resurrected for their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins, His people are now a kingdom of priests just as they were always meant to be, bearing the presence of God and the justice of God, which is the foundation of his throne, to all the world. And that is the good news of the kingdom of God. So, God establishes his kingdom in Christ through the true exodus of his son. But in the Old Testament, as we already looked at, the redemptive movement and the establishment of the kingdom, it didn't stop with the Exodus. The second stage was conquest. And here's where things get really interesting. So after Jesus is resurrected, he spends another 40 days teaching his disciples, and we have an account of that 40 days in in very brief terms in the book of Acts chapter 1. And after all of that teaching, his disciples have a very pressing question for him. And we see it in Acts 1-6. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like they were baffled before when Jesus claimed to be king and then got himself killed. But now at this point, he's resurrected. They have a new understanding that he has been raised to life. And now, now must be the moment of conquest. (coughs) Excuse me. Now will be the moment when he will restore the kingdom of God on this earth. But still, they don't understand the nature of Christ's kingdom. They were expecting that messianic kingdom that was foretold in Isaiah and other prophets. Like when that kingdom arrives, all of God's enemies will be overthrown. And he will bring justice to bear over the whole face of the earth. No longer will people be oppressed by enemy nations, nor will, there be, nor will there be oppression of any kind or war or famine or anything. That's what happens when God's kingdom comes to fill the earth. And that is what they were waiting for. Okay, the king has arrived. He is resurrected in power. Now will you establish the kingdom. According to Isaiah, when the root of Jesse arrives, the promised Davidic king, he will come in glory. And the kingdom of Israel, which had failed in the days of Isaiah, will be restored on the earth. And when that day happens, a great ingathering of the nations will occur. In this manifestation of the kingdom, a completely new form of existence will be ushered in. Death will be no more. There will be global peace and justice, and the Lord will host for his people lavish banquets on the mountain of God. So the disciples asked Jesus, is now that time? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel now? They finally come to understand the cross of Christ as his exodus, and to them, that means it must be time to overthrow the Romans and complete the conquest because they know their Old Testament. They could see that Jesus had proven to be a better Moses. He must now be taking up the mantle of Joshua. How does Jesus respond to their question? In verse 7, he says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, Jesus tells them that the timeline of the ushering in of God's glorious kingdom is not for them to know. But the time, listen, but the time of conquest has arrived. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Like remember, when the kingdom comes, there will be a great ingathering of the nations. And so Jesus is essentially saying this, the kingdom has arrived already, but the kingdom has not yet arrived in all of its fullness. As you wait, put the good news of the kingdom of God on your lips and take up the task of conquest, but not on a small strip of land in the Middle East, rather into the whole earth. But there's a very significant difference between the conquest of Canaan 
in Christ's conquest of the world. He tells them they must wait, into, wait in Jerusalem until they are empowered by God's spirit. Only then will they know what it means to be his witnesses. And so the conquest of Christ and the ushering in of his kingdom will not occur with swords, but with words. You see that? The true conquest of the world is defined by the spirit-empowered witness to Christ and the good news of his kingdom. And as God's people scatter throughout the world, announcing the good news of the kingdom, communities of Christian witness are being formed in its wake, and they do what Jesus did when he was here. Namely, they do justice. They right the wrongs that have kept people in the suffering of injustice. And they do so as a witness, as a sign that the kingdom of God has arrived. The arrival of the kingdom always leaves justice in its wake. And in doing so, we become a witness to the future justice of God's kingdom when it comes in power and fills the earth. Yes, it has arrived. It is not perfect. There are still tears in the fabric. But we gird ourselves and we go and we mend these tears in the fabric because it is a witness to the time. It is, it is a signal of the hope that we have that God will one day make all things new. Okay, now, the nature of Christ's conquest is established. He's telling his disciples that he really is the better Joshua. And what did Joshua do? He led the people into the land, and he fought at their head. He was there. But at this juncture, Christ does something entirely strange. Verse 9, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Like, is Jesus abandoning them at the moment when he should be at the head? Like, is he leaving when he should be leading the charge of conquest? No, of course not. In Christ's ascension, Jesus does not abandon them to achieve the conquest on their own. Rather, in his ascension, he enters the seat of heavenly command and sends his spirit to carry on the mission. And who is the spirit of God? Well, we meet him on the very first pages of the Bible. You remember what he was doing there? He was hovering over the waters of creation, which is to say that the spirit, like where the spirit is, he, he transforms created space into covenant space. And in covenant space, where God's kingdom dwells, justice must be done. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit arrives and fills the disciples. And the Feast of Pentecost, in case you don't know, was a celebration of the ingathering of the harvest, right? The prophets spoke of this festival as symbolic of the ingathering of the remnant of Israel from all the nations. And that is exactly what happens on that day. The Spirit feel, fills Christ's redeemed people. And what do they do? They go out preaching. And when they do, it says that the people hear 
and they are cut to the heart, and they repent, and they believe the conquest has begun. And the rest of the book of Acts is Christ's answer to the question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer is, yes. Yes, I will. Through the witness of Christ's disciples, the kingdom of God is being made plain. And we know that Christ's present, excuse me, Christ's kingdom is present precisely because we see sinners being reconciled to God. That's the sure sign. And in the wake of that manifestation of the kingdom, justice is being done. Watch. We see that the blind in Acts, we see them receiving their sight. We see the lame walking. We see that among the believers, nobody was in want or need. Nobody was in poverty because everyone was cared for. And to see that reality, the only conclusion anyone can possibly come to is the kingdom is being restored to Israel. Mm. And that vocation has been handed down through the generations to us, brothers and sisters. Through the exodus of Jesus Christ, we have been made a kingdom of priests, bearing the presence of God to the nations and announcing the good news of God's kingdom. But as you know, in this age, the kingdom is not visible like it will be on the day of Christ's return. In this age, the kingdom, while not visible, is audible. It comes to bear on the world through the words of witness spoken by Christ's new covenant people. And the, and the closest we can come to seeing the kingdom of God is when it is manifest as God's people rectify the injustices on the earth in anticipation of the fullness of justice that will come in the glorious appearing of Christ. Now, we come to the table as we do each and every week. And this table is a table of grace, but it is also a table of Christ's ongoing conquest. He conquers by love. He conquers by sacrifice. He conquers by kindness and grace. And for all of us who have received Christ, who have been rescued through his exodus, we glory in that kindness. We glory in that conquest. And so, As you come to the meal today, please take the bread, take the cup, and remember, because of the injustice that was done to Christ, he has brought us into his family, seated us at his table, not only as servants, not even as brothers and sisters, although that's true, but as sons and daughters and fellow heirs. We have all of his riches at our disposal to go out and do justice in this world. And so, if you want to know what those riches taste like, then there is bread and there is a cup, and I invite you to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, I don't understand sometimes why such 
um, important things are left to such fragile people like us. And yet, what astonishes me is that though there are many tears in the fabric of justice in this world, you have empowered us by your own spirit to go, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and of a king who came to establish justice in this world. So grant us that grace to go and repair the torn fabric of shalom wherever it may be so that we may be witnesses of the kingdom and the king whom we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ.